Hi, and welcome to another edition of Authorised, the podcast where writers speak to me. Kevin Hillier. And uh, today I have an absolute beauty for you and I think a, a, a brilliant book, a most fascinating book. Uh, one of those books that once you start reading it, you'll become absolutely immersed in it. It's called The Husband Poisoner. It's by Tanya Bretherton and it is a beauty. Uh, suburban women who killed in post-World War II Sydney and the way they went about it and uh, the incredibly well-described way that, uh, that each of these murders took place uh, as done by Tanya, is uh, fascinating. I'm sure you're going to love the book and I'm sure you're going to love the chat uh, that we're about to have uh, with the author of The Husband Poisoner. With thanks, of course, to our very good friends at CSCG. Now, if uh, you've got a financial situation that you want to talk to someone about, we have the people and they have the people at CSCG that you should be talking to because they are experts in the field. They know what they're talking about. They'll find out for you. They'll get all the information you need and uh, they'll just uh, very simply sit down and talk to you about uh, your financial situation be it accounting or taxation, whatever it is. And they're as near as the phone, double nine seven four eight triple three, double nine seven four eight triple three, or cscg.com.au. Have a talk to them. You'll like them and uh, you'll find uh, that you'll do great business with them. But let's get to our author for this week and the book, The Husband Poisoner. It's a story that doesn't sit well with you as you read it because the reasons for things are not and probably will not ever be clear. And I find that fascinating. Yep. Where did the where did, where did you find this story? Look, I I write in this field. So this is actually the fourth book that I've written that's historical true crime. Yeah, they're all cheery it, titles. They oh they are. <laughs> they're, they're not really beach reads. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um and this one, I think this is the only book that I've really gone looking for a specific type of story. So the other books are all about um, history, crime and Sydney. And I've I'd come across the stories while I was doing other work because obviously I, no one writes full time or very few people do. Yeah. So they were stories that I came across while doing other types of research work. And the one issue I hadn't really covered, because I've done a lot on gender and crime, is that I hadn't looked at poisoning. And for anyone who's a true crime enthusiast, you know, you would know that the archetype of the female poisoner is a big one. You know, women have a reputation for, you know, having a, you know, a particular interest in that style of murder. So I actually went looking for, I thought, I wonder if there's been any big poisoning cases, um, you know, in in Australia's history. Went out to the archive here in Western Sydney and I couldn't believe what I found. Yeah. There, there was a huge um, amount of material, as the book looks at, in a kind of quite a condensed period in the post-war era. That post-war era was an interesting and challenging time for Australian women, wasn't it? Because of because of what was happening in their, in, I guess, in their lounge rooms, and basically who was coming back in through the front door. Yeah, absolutely. It was a challenging time, I think, personally, because women were homemakers, expected to be really homemakers, wives, and mothers, yeah. and that was really it. Then you also had a period where, and, and I explore it a little bit in the book in the case of a couple of the women, where they had worked very successfully and raised families without men during the war. And when we had returned servicemen come home, 
of course, decisions needed to be made in a big policy sense about how we were going to manage that. And a decision was made by many employers to displace women from the labour market entirely. And for people like in the case of Yvonne, who, who I mentioned in the book, um, she was in really in deep trouble because she um, hadn't been supported by her husband at all and was now out of work. Yeah. Thallium sounds like a fairly harmless uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, thing to, to, to have on the shelf in your in your pantry or your, your, your the laundry or wherever. I mean, it rhymes with Valium. Valium, you know, yes. relaxes you. So, surely. But you don't, don't confuse the two. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Uh, because because it's uh, it, uh, what an amazing uh, killing agent it is. Odourless, colourless and tasteless. My God, you couldn't, yes. you couldn't ask for anything more perfect. No. No, and it, it, it's a heavy metal, so its effect on the body it is horrible. It eventually just kind of it destroys the central nervous system. So it's an it's an effective way to kill people, and it, certainly the the murderers in the book used small doses, and over a long period of time, it really didn't look like anything other than a chronic illness that at the time no one knew how to test for, so they yeah. didn't know how to test for the presence of thallium. That's quite staggering really, isn't it? I mean, it's basically rat poison is what it, what it, yeah, it what, is. What it's marketed Absolutely. as. So, uh, oh, yes. And, and what it did and what, and what, what is so beautifully written, you've done beautifully in the book, is this is a slow, painful, horrible death. This is not like you see in the movies where it takes 15 seconds and the, and the actor goes, and they're dead. No. This is like one of the most degenerative kind of uh, murders and, and dying sequences you could ever have. Oh, it's horrible. And it, it, some of those, the sections of the book where I talk about a, a couple of the murders in particular that took a particularly long period of time, it, it, there is no other way to describe it other than just completely horrible. Yeah. What those people went through was horrible. Yeah. And the, and the treatment for it, as, as you quite rightly say, they didn't know, they couldn't find it, so they didn't know what they were treating. So, I mean, to, to be telling someone who is actually being poisoned by another person that it's all in their head is quite, yes. again, is another kind of torture of, of, of some description. Yeah, it, it, there's a cruelty in it that's hard oh. to imagine, which in the case of, you know, one of the husbands that died, again, at the hands of um, um, Yvonne Fletcher, uh, who's sort of the, the first, Thallium murderer in Australia in terms of what we know on the books. Yeah. Desmond's death was, was terrible and they really couldn't work out. They, it started as sort of chronic flu and he would go to the doctor and just couldn't get answers. They thought it was a stomach ulcer for a while, but then he suffered horrible leg paralysis and it eventually sends you blind, your hair falls out. Desmond ended up, ended up um, in Callan Park. Um, the insane asylum at Roselle. We should point out that the, the the women in this book are by no means painted to be heroes. Yvonne Fletcher and uh, Caroline uh, Grills, who are the the two the two main protagonists here, um, they're, they're by no means that while they are the heroes of the book, they're not heroines as such. No, that's right, and I, I think that's why I'm so glad that you said that because I think sometimes when people think you're writing in this field. You're sort of an apologist for the for the actions of people, you know, particularly women who yeah. are in 
tricky situations and make terrible choices. I mean, I think in their own sick sense of logic, these women probably thought, oh, this is a solution. It's a terrible, terrible solution. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I would want to do would be to appear to be an apologist for it. And the death sentence was on the table? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, if you were convicted of murder at that point in time, because the sort of 52, 53, 1952, it was compulsory. You you were given a death sentence. Now, lots of sentences were commuted, and that is what happened in the case of those two women. They ended up in prison with life sentences because, in fact, the death penalty changed. It was just before that. So in New South Wales, it changed in 1955 and was abolished. Yeah. So. Yeah, what uh, what fascinating? I mean, it's it's a fascinating as we've just said for the last ten minutes or so. It's a fascinating subject. What what got you into this sort of genre, this this history crime genre? I um I my background is sociology, so I'm actually not a historian, and I think it's part work. So it's sort of part my background. I'm interested in the reasons why people make the decisions they do at a particular point in time. So sociology is a lot about biography, but I'm also a true crime reader, like many people are. I watch, you know, documentaries on the streaming services. I listen to podcasts. So I'm I'm interested in the field as well. Are you a ghoul? (laughs) But I, I sometimes wonder about not just my fascination with this field, but kind of the societal fascination we have with it. It is quite ghoulish and macabre, isn't it? I mean, I'd like to think it's for noble reasons, maybe, you know. (laughs) There is a lot of, there is an underpinning in a lot of true crime around themes of justice. The, the detail of which you write about some of the uh, the uh, when the bodies are exhumed, um, (laughs) is that, where where did that come from? Look, I found it fascinating that this could be that the stories were, the cases were managed in the way they were, and the police officers. Well, there was one case that I talk about in the book where I think it was the first time that they ever filmed. So they used moving images to record the exhumation of one of the bodies. And I talk about the strange and what would you. The, the kink, I guess, of one particular police officer in New South Wales, I found that fascinating. So it was sort of, it was a way of building, telling that part of the story was a way of building a story around the eccentricity and peculiarity of that particular police officer. Yeah. The two police officers who are the kind of central police characters in the, in, in the mm-hmm. book, um, tell us a little about them. Look, they are, I, I, as much as I'm a true crime follower, I don't, I'm not, police corruption's not something that I've written very much about. And yet, there's a huge body of work on police corruption in New South Wales. Yeah. <laughs> so the two characters, Ferguson and Cray, I came into this story just seeing them as the police officers who were largely responsible for capturing and convicting the biggies in the thallium field. So they, they were responsible uh, and, advi- if not managed, advised and directed most of the thallium cases in New South Wales. What I discovered was that they actually have really 
dark histories themselves. I didn't know anything about them, but they are well known as infamous um, and criminally corrupt yeah. officers in New South Wales. Yeah, which is something that seemed to uh, permeate uh, the, the police forces for many years after that. Indeed, and and they the mentorship of of corruption, and I talk a little bit about the book. Uh, it, there's even a mention of Roger Rogerson because there was a kind of a, a dynasty of corrupt cof- mm. uh, officers mentoring generations of corrupt police officers, and I found that fascinating. It was really my first kind of exposure uh, to all of those stories. Now, Tanya, the, the, the twist in all this that we haven't mentioned so far is the recipes. Yes. <laughs> you, may, you may well giggle. <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's a bit troubling, isn't it? You know, but when, when, when my wife, who's read this book, starts serving me up potato and bacon pie and asks me if I want a Milo at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm starting to get a little bit panicky, Tanya. Yeah, I, I, I'd be making for the door if I were you. Um, what fascinated me about that is, the criminal transcripts detail a, a lot about the way the women went about, you know, poisoning and the vehicles effectively that they used. In yeah. the case of Caroline Grills, they were taking samples of her food in great detail to work out what had been, you know, tampered with and what hadn't been. And when they were listing some of the the recipes that, that these women used, I thought, these are things that are in every kind of, you know, I'm a kid of the 70s. Yep. My parents were um, a, a couple of the 50s. You know, they were, a, they were a 50s husband and housewife. And I thought these are recipes that every Australian family would know. Um, and that was really sort of the inspiration for including them at the back of each chapter because I thought every family has their own version of these recipes in some form, probably. And, it, and it's your mum's cookbook that you took some of it from. We should point out your mum's not a murderer, but uh, it was from your mum's cookbook. She is indeed not. It was. In fact, they are the, the Christmas pudding recipe that is in there was my dad's favourite Christmas pudding recipe. There you go. So, yeah. It, yeah, it, but it is fascinating, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Have you just scratched the surface with the, the material that's uh, about uh, in, in this particular, you know, in the husband poisoner area? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm always working on new books. Uh, the, the next uh, – poisoning isn't a topic that I'm probably going to um, return to for a little while. Yeah. And the post-war poisonings that I talk about in the book, I think what's interesting about it and I think I talk about it uh, towards the end of the book, is that the legislative change that happened as a result of these cases meant that we had a big blip of these poisonings and then it stopped. So the control and regulation of the sale of rat in particular meant that it was a very short window in time that this, that this went on for. So, yeah, thallium poison didn't continue for a long period of time. I must admit, I, I looked in Woolies the other day and I didn't see any thal rat on the, uh, on the, no. on the shelf, thank goodness. <laughs> no, no. It's, they, it, it is a particularly dangerous poison. And I, I talk a little bit in the book about the fact that it, in terms of its discovery as a heavy metal, it kind of arrived quite late in, in the periodic table, if that makes sense, so that, 
it was only really discovered in the mid-1800s. And so, of course, once we discover something, people want to put it to a commercial use. So here it was used for vermin control. In the United States, there were deaths due to thallium poisoning because it was used widely in beauty products. Oh, really? Yeah. So a similar set of things were happening over there because it was in hair removal cream. So we had the post-war period in which women wanted to wear more revealing fashions and they wanted to remove hair and they were going blind. Their hair was not just falling out, but they were dying. Good God. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Yes. And I'm, I'm assuming that, that this was just fairly readily available, as I, I mean, I jokingly said, on the shelves at Woolies, but it was, because it was a rat poison, it was there for, for vermin control, as you say, so you could actually buy, oh, yes. it, buy it across the counter. Oh, yes. It was cheap. It came in a little bottle that sort of looked a bit kind of like an eyedropper sort of size. So you could buy an ounce, two ounce and five ounce bottles of it. So it was a liquid and they, the manufacturers, it was a small manufacturer in Enfield in Sydney, they added a blue dye to it thinking that that would help to kind of provide a protection so people would know if it had been added to something. But, of course, what happened is it was just a vegetable dye, so it would settle in the very bottom, which is why it then became – so when, when these women used it to, you know, commit murder, uh, it was it was clear. Um, and you could buy it from any grocery store, Jeez. any – pharmacy, any hardware store, and in fact, they had little displays of it at the counter, so people were making impulse purchases of sal rat because it was so cheap, it was about the cost of a can of coffee. Good grief. Good mm. grief. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's staggering, isn't it? That's absolutely staggering. Yeah, it, it really is, and in fact, some the vermin problem in Sydney, which we've sort of always had a vermin problem, really, but the vermin problem in that period and the post-war period was so bad that they, some councils were even giving foul rat away because oh. they wanted local residents to be on the front foot to, to you know, knock the problem on the head. Yeah. What's the reaction been to the book so far? Really, really interesting. I... <laughs> Some people kind of think it's uh, that I'm sort of defending the indefensible, which yep. has been, I think, just read the book and you'll see it's it. There's some harrowing stories of what this does to people, and it it there, this book is no apology for that. The weirder thing has been the strange response on social media where people direct message me pictures of food they're cooking for their husband. And I think, oh. Because <laughs> 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 it kind of occurred to me that there is there are some similarities about what's happened to us in the last 12 months in terms of what's happened in our domestic situations to what happened in that late 1940s when the war finished and, and the men came home from war. The, the, the kind of uh, domestic hot pot that we've been put in for the last 12 months because of COVID and being locked in yeah, with no, each other. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, actually. Well, I'm wondering. Yeah, I hadn't even thought. I'm wondering if in 50 years from now someone's going to be doing an interview with someone about, you know, the killings that happened during the COVID period. 
had not even occurred to me, but it, it, that absolutely is right. It's put people in an environment where they felt they couldn't escape and they kind of, that suppression. That being the kind of social experimental side of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was there anything common about the, the women uh, in the book that, that have perpetrated these murders? Is there a common thread with them? That, I went looking for that because in sociology we look for patterns yeah. and it's often people's economic and social circumstances that you'll go, ah, they were in the same kind of bind and that maybe is what made them think this was a, a, a way of, of solving this problem. What was fascinating, I think, about this is that the women were so different. Yeah. So the, I so, sort of looked fairly closely at three cases. Yvonne Fletcher was a really working-class woman in a very gritty part of city of Sydney at the time in Newtown. Caroline Grills was kind of a middle-class housewife. Um, her husband was a real estate agent. She lived in the, the Ride and Gladesville area, sort of an up-and-coming kind of middle-class suburb and her family was sort of in the lower north shore and the third woman veronica monte was sort of an aspirational dare i say it like a a joan crawford type she 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 had a lot of issues and she was the one that had an affair with her son-in-law she was sort of a cougar wasn't she 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 really was and she um, yeah, I don't even know where to go with Veronica Monty, but she, yeah, she was a, she was quite an extreme character, but all really different women. And I thought that's actually a fascinating kind of observation in of itself that they all came to the same conclusion in the same period that this is what they were going to do. Has a movie company contacted you as yet? Because it just strikes me the uh, the richness of the words in this. Uh, I mean, you, you write it beautifully, but it would uh, it would transcend very easily. I would have thought to a film. Oh yeah, look, I would. But that would be. I think it would translate well too. I agree with you. So, yeah, look, who knows? Who knows what will come of these things? So, what are you working on now, Tanya? What's what's the project at the moment? Uh, the next book will probably be. Another another cheerful chuckle for yeah. people. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> uh, it will probably be baby farming, I think. Oh. Um, yeah, which was happened in both Sydney and Melbourne. Actually, it kind of happened in even in the regional areas, but um, in the late nineteenth century, sort of baby murder on mass because we had a lot of shame associated with illegitimacy. Yes. There's a very famous case in Sydney, but I'll be looking at some of the other ones that haven't been written about before. Do you do? How do you how do you distance yourself? How do you not get uh, emotionally involved in these stories and and uh, you know have that have that get to you? Do, do you know what's weird is that I think one there's a buffer because the stories are older, okay. and I think we kind the, it creates an artificial buffer because we kind of can say these things, I chalk them up to history, you know. It was a long time ago, society's moved on. And, of course, in some ways it hasn't because I'm always stunned that I will do a case on infanticide from, you know, 150 years ago and what do you know, one will, will pop up in the news feed that week when I'm doing the research for it. And it was the same with the book on murder-suicide. 
in the early 1900s, which was a terrible case, my second book, we had two really horrible murder-suicides that happened in the year that that book came out. But the other thing that I think I I am quite affected by some aspects of these stories when I, when I stumble upon them, yeah. and I use that really as a meter. And if I get upset and I'm affected and I, I feel, then I think, this is something that's worth writing about. Yeah, no, you're a very, very good writer, very talented writer, and they're, they're terrific stories that uh, that you're telling. When I say terrific, you know what I mean by that. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, th- no, and thank you very much. No, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And uh, one, of, one of those books where you start to read it and you can't put it down. Oh, great. Oh, thanks so much. It's lovely to hear. No, terrific. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated having a chat. Uh, look forward to the next one. Sort of. No, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. My thanks to Tanya Bretherton for her time and uh, an incredibly good book. And as she mentioned, it's one of uh, four books that she's done so far and already working on the next one. But uh, uh, if you're like me and you're fascinated by this subject and uh, and just by the brilliant uh, descriptive way that she writes, I'll be uh, dipping into those other uh, three books. Even though they're not, as uh, Tanya quite rightly points out, they're not the cheeriest of subjects, but certainly fascinating and uh, set in a, a time period in Australia that uh, makes it even more fascinating. So hope you can check that one out. Uh, available at all good bookshops now. That that uh, is uh, through Hatchet Australia, The Husband Poisoner. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. This has been the Authorised Podcast, where writers speak with thanks to our very good friends at CSCG. Make sure you uh, have a chat to them about your financial situation. They can help you out. No matter whether it's a, a complex situation or a simple situation, they will find the solution for you. Give them a call on 03 or jump on the website and see who you're dealing with, cscg.com.au. Till the next time, take care of yourself. <laughs>